Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast. Today is episode 24 and we have Daniel Kustelski joining the show. Daniel was born in the U.S. and having spent time in South Africa has gained experience in global betting and wagering. He has run a number of betting businesses and is back in America as the CEO of Chalkline Sports. Today, he'll discuss everything from in-play betting, the U.S. betting landscape, and the challenges for operators and bettors in the 2017 global betting climate. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential future guests you'd like to hear from. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy Jake's chat with Daniel Kostelski. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Kostelski. Daniel, thank you very much for joining me. Great. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Daniel, you're based in the U.S. now, so I want to get stuck into some topics about the U.S. and and what it's like to to be in the U.S. and the betting world here and obviously some of the business aspects from an American point of view. But before we get there, you have a very intriguing and interesting background. I've sort of taken an interest in some of the stuff you've been doing in the past and what you're up to now and some of the public you know appearances you've made and what you've spoken about. So for those who who haven't had the luxury of going through some of the cool things you've been working on, do you want to take us into your background, a little bit of your history to, to where you are now? Yeah, that'd be great. I, uh, I started uh, my, my illustrious career after graduating from the United States Military Academy. I was an officer in the uh, Corps of Engineers in the U.S. Army. So I spent about five years in the, in the Army. And uh, I got out in 2001, and I had met my wife in, uh, in the Army who is South African. So after I got out of the army, I just wanted to travel a little bit and unwind. So I went to South Africa for about six months and we decided to get married and I did my MBA down there. And, and so, uh, yeah, so my life in South Africa started in about 2002. Um, and I always wanted to, I always wanted to earn a living, um, in sports and I certainly wasn't a good enough athlete. So I, uh, so I got involved in sports marketing and in 2004, FIFA decided to have the World Cup in South Africa. So South Africa was a, was a hotbed for a lot of sports marketing activity, and it was a lot of fun. But pretty quickly, uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, we started to work with sports betting brands and, and, and gambling brands because there's a very you know, close correlation between the, the gambling industry and sports marketing and, and being associated with teams and leagues. And so I, I got involved in sports sports betting. Uh, actually, we, we, we launched, uh, we launched Volt Bet in 2009. It was licensed out of, out of the Western Cape in Cape Town. And we, we started a sports book. My, my current partner now, he, he was the tech behind it and uh, I was the operations and, and the commercial guy. And we ran a successful book and we actually got bought by a, a, a large land-based casino group called Sun International in 2013. I spent about 18 months after that acquisition, uh, and then I came back to the United States after spending more than enough time overseas, and uh, came back and I, I started running a, an online uh, horse racing business called Watch and Wager. 
And it was, uh, I did that for about 18 months, but the sports betting bug uh, bit me. And uh, yeah, and there was a lot of activity that was happening in, in 2015, 2016. So uh, started my own business called Chalkline Sports. Very, very cool. For those who haven't been to South Africa or don't know what the betting culture is like there or, or even yeah. what the, the wagering world has to offer in, in South Africa, do you want to take us through that briefly and maybe some similarities with different parts of the world that you've seen or maybe a comparison? Is it more of a UK, Australia style or is it more US? What's the what's the uh, the on South Africa? Yeah, uh, it's 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 a it's a it's an interesting market in that the land-based uh, sports betting is really about soccer, football. Uh, it, it's, it's probably 70, 80% of the, of the way that happened. Uh, you have this, this weird mix of, it's pro- our book was probably about 35 to 40% rugby. Uh, I'd say, you know, 30% crickets, uh, 20% uh, soccer, and then some tennis and some, some odds and ends, some basketball. So, yeah, it, it really depends uh, depends on what, what kind of sports book that you're running. If you're online only, you're going to get a, a pretty broad mix, and it's going to be a pretty low-margin business. Uh, whereas if you're, in, if you're in the shops in, in, in South Africa, you're gonna be, it's going to be much higher margins, lots of multiples, and it's all going to be soccer. So is it a really competitive wagering market are there a lot of professionals there who know exactly what they're doing and you've got to balance sort of the professionals and the the recreational money or is it you know more focused on the multiples and the parlay bets and and combining you know lots of matches which obviously helps on the operator side and the bookmaker side from getting the percentage out of those bets yeah no it, it's uh there's there's quite a few uh really sharp uh, individuals uh and and yeah they, they uh they understand rugby they understand cricket well um and uh you know football's a a relatively decent margin sport so there's a lot of uh there's a lot that can happen in a soccer match that's uh, that's random less so maybe in in some other sports and that's where you get your sharp guys that that come in and, and really know what they're doing so yeah obviously risk management um and 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 you know, mobile and, and online guys are taking wagers. You know, twenty four seven. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to find uh, problems in the software. They're trying to find uh, opportunities that exist. And so, yeah, you're 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 always on your on your um, on your front feet trying to manage risk with uh, you know with an online book. So when you finished up with Watch and Wager and you moved into Chalkline Sports, what was sort of the rationale and thinking? Because obviously, the U.S. is a pretty unique sort of place for for sports betting given the the scene with las vegas and then very minimal if any sports betting outside of las vegas in a couple of states and for the most part it's it's illegal to bet on sports so give give us an insight into your mindset in the u.s thinking about sports betting i guess for those who haven't sort of lived the experience of living in the u.s and the way sports betting is treated and handled what were i guess what were you thinking at that time and what led to to chalkline well, the thinking was that the, the challenges that exist in sports books, uh, certainly online and, and land-based across uh, regulated jurisdictions, is that they spend a lot of a lot of their net revenues on marketing. So I think it's twenty-five to thirty percent of their of their net revs are spent on marketing, and 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 that's pretty inefficient for any industry. And having operated before. Uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, let me just focus on this one particular item. Uh, as an operator, you're worried about risk. You're worried about tech. You're worried about uh, regulatory issues and compliance issues and, and customer service. And you're worried about a whole bunch of things. Um, and, and marketing sometimes doesn't really sit on the top three or top four of the list. So, uh, so the, the concept of Chalkline really was born out of, out of helping operators 
you know, be much more efficient in, in that in that in that one particular area of their of their business. So we we take a, a you know a lot of data, all the data that exists, and, and we we visualize it. It's um, you know put it on mobile phones and and really uh, automate content for for operators to uh, to go out there and acquire customers and retain customers um, in a much more efficient manner within the, than what they're currently doing. That's in regulated markets. Now, obviously, we're we're based here in, in the United States, um, and and it was hard. You know, it's hard not to to notice all the things that are happening in the United States. But again, it's it's a it's a five billion dollar industry in, in Nevada that's legal, um, and and you know I've I've, I've operated a, a legal online horse racing uh, business here in the United States, and and while. You know, there's an allure to, to to gravitate towards the U.S. because of all of the illegal betting that's happening. We're really, you know, we're really focusing a lot of our time and energy on on uh, on the uh, on the regulated markets, the soon to be regulated markets like the U.S. There there are opportunities, and our same our platform you know applies to 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 the soon to be regulated markets where it's a play for fun. You know, we have pick 'em games and and content and sports betting information that that every gambler will uh, every sports better that would want. Uh, but we're we're really applying that to the, you know, to the casinos that might get the sports betting licenses um, here in the United States in the tracks, rather than looking at uh, at the at the at the offshore books. So, do you think you would have moved into the operator side if it had been a different regulatory and legal environment in the U.S.? Because I feel as though a lot of the research and development and technology and things like that are lost in the betting space, just because. And you're a perfect example. You've come from another country. You've come to the U.S. The scene is set here with with Las Vegas, and it's you know relatively saturated. It's obviously a big market, and there's there's obviously a place for disruption. But someone like yourself had to move into a automated content service, and obviously still technology, but not specific to sports betting, which in my mind is a loss for the overall industry. And you know Silicon Valley is obviously not a heavily involved in sports betting R and D or anything like that. Do you think you would have uh, approached it differently had the regulatory environment? being similar to where you came from in South Africa? I, I would have. I, I think that having operated an online horse racing site here in the United States did open my eyes to the challenges of, of being an operator. Um, you know, we were licensed in North Dakota. Uh, in, the, in the short amount of time that I was there, uh, the, the amount of reporting that, that we had to provide to the various states in various time intervals, whether that was weekly or monthly, um, and, and based on, on on what they wanted as reports, it, it grew it grew quite onerous. So, operating in the United States is far different than than, than operating. I think I, I venture to say in most other countries, um, and that that's that was an eye opener, and that was probably one of the reasons why I thought to myself, you know what, let's. Let's maybe look at the periphery and, and, and help operators uh, be a little more efficient rather than actually uh, taking the bet, um, you know, myself. That, that, that's that's, uh, that's going to be a challenge for anybody that operates in the United States on a national basis. So I'm interested in your operator experience from the perspective of pregame betting versus in-play betting. Obviously, you've spent time in recent years with an online business and you've seen, I guess, the the split of money that's come in a pre-match uh, format that's obviously before the game started and then obviously all of the money that's being bet as the game's being played. In your experience, what's the the split of that money? Is it 50-50 or is it higher or lower? What's sort of your experience in terms of pre-game money versus in-play money? Yeah, it, in, 
in Africa, that that really kind of depends on the sports. I mean, I, I think if cricket inherently is a is an in play, uh, you know, uh, sport to, to wager on. You're always betting on over and under over and under runs. Um, and so, uh, you know, our book was you know 99% uh, live and play. Uh, your your rugby's and your American footballs and 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 the 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 the, the football or the soccer. Uh, yeah, that's probably going to be 60 or 70%. I, the, the the rate limiting step is is always technology. So how long, as an operator, how long can you can you have prices out there where, where customers can actually place that wager, um, and 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 place those bets, and and then obviously there are some legal uh, you know jurisdictional issues uh, you know like Australia where I think you can only phone in, phone in in play. Uh, so in Africa, I would say in play is probably about. 50 percent of, of all of those wagers, and that's that's increasing. In Europe, it's it's seventy to eighty percent, and that's probably increasing as well. Here in the United States, I think we're looking at about twenty to twenty five percent out of Nevada is live and play, uh, and that's a little surprising to me because I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. American sports are are riddled with uh, advertisement or advertising during the during the game, and it presents so many good opportunities to place wagers. As a as an operator and as a as a tech provider, you know you've got you've got big windows to to leave prices out there for for better. So I think that uh, I think that here in the U.S. there's you know that's certainly one of the one of the one of the big opportunities for books, uh, not just in Nevada but as they roll out across the nation. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I asked was because I speak to people here in the U.S. and I'll say you know as a just a side question, what do you think the percentage of of in play bets is on something like NFL where if it's a no huddle offense, you can have 20, 30, 40 seconds in between plays sometimes, um, you know, and it's quite easy in that window with the current technology to place a bet. And they might even say like, oh, you, I don't think you can place a bet in play. You just bet on the spread before the game or, you know, yeah. you take a, a few different, you know, wages on who's going to win and the line, maybe under over some of the derivative markets they'll know. But for the most part, they don't even realize that in play is, is something that's possible and when you discuss it and open up the possibility and talk about it, their yeah. mind is blown quite often, which is something that's relatively simple for those who've been exposed to it and also more common than, than pre-game betting. So I guess yes. what do you think the potential is? I think obviously the numbers you mentioned in Nevada being anything below 50%, I would say is low around the world based on a world's global standard. Do you yes. think there's uh, room to move in Nevada and obviously the US as it opens up more and more? Plenty, but 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 the rate limiting step, I, I would agree with you, is is the gambler, is is the sports better. Um, you know, when you've never really been exposed to live and play, and and if you're just one of those guys that takes a position before, you know, in pregame, and then you're just trading in and out of those positions, uh, you know, during the game, you know, that takes a level of sophistication that, uh, you know, most Americans probably just aren't familiar with. Uh, having said that, though, once it becomes legal and once it becomes uh, you know, part of of the sports betting culture. I think that live and play is going to be massive in the United States, and it's because the sports are so well well geared uh, commercially for uh, for the stoppages and and for those for those places for those times to to wager. Yeah, it's almost as if timeouts were invented for sports betting, <laughs> and yeah. three minute window between important yeah. parts of the game yes. uh, is is the perfect scenario, which is. Yeah. I haven't heard that in the mainstream media, and I certainly wouldn't be, you know, blasting it all over ESPN. But the way the the, the football scoring is, and the way the football uh, game style is, with those ten, fifteen minute, uh, sorry, second increments between plays, it's 
it's a pretty perfect situation. So I guess thinking about that topic a little bit more, what would need to be some of the protections, thinking, I guess, on the operator side, based on your experience and what you did in Africa and also on the on the better side? Do you need, uh, I guess, viable video feeds where you can have someone monitoring or do you need other technologies in place so that you can be protected and, and someone isn't you know, getting two, three seconds ahead of you and then winning a lot of money, which you can obviously find out pretty quickly. But what are some of the things you think about as an operator or even a better when you're talking about in-play betting? Yeah, it's all about tech and risk management. Um, and so, you know, if, 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 if you're competing, if you're competing with a guy inside the stadium and, and I'm not and in my trading team, uh, you know, they're not getting the feed until three or four seconds later. If that's, you know, you know, standard definition, high def might be a little longer. You know, those are all factors that you have to consider from a risk management perspective. Uh, and, and it's just about it's about having great tech. It's about being able to, 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 to identify those customers that, uh, you know, that have tried to you know, take you out in the past around around timing issues, um, you know, individually putting some 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 time limits on, on them placing their wagers uh, and, and size of bets. Uh, you know, limiting size of bets on an individual basis all the way through to a, a, a team and a, and a game and a league basis. Um, and then rolling up all of that risk, uh, you know, that might might be existing in parlays. So if people are adding in-game plays to, to parlays. So all of those all of those factors are, are important. But but having said that, uh, the, the technology, it already exists, um, maybe not here in the United States and not to the level of sophistication that, that it needs to. But 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 those are all those are all, you know, great challenges to, to, to try and overcome, because that means that people are wanting to use your product and you're getting the, the revenue. Um, inherently, live and play is a, is a usually a smaller margin uh, business than pregame. But uh, yeah, but, but it's but it's handled nonetheless. And, and as an operator, that's that's really what you want. You want activity. So it is a lower margin for the operators, is it? It was for us in South Africa. It probably is across the globe as well. And is that because the smarter people are doing it and they're, you know, backing their opinion a lot more and those who are just dabbling might not bet as much and, and might not necessarily need to bet if they've got a, a pre-match bet on? Or what are some of the reasons why it's such a low margin? Yeah, I think you hit the, name, the nail on the head. First of all, uh, you know, every book is, is going to have a slightly different risk profile because the, every book is a market maker. So if I'm, ta- if I'm taking a lot of money on Man United versus Chelsea and I'm taking a lot of money on, on Man United, I might get guys that come in from, an, you know, that have a couple of, couple of different books open and, and, they're, and they're cleaning me out on my on my big price on on Chelsea so that, that's one of the issues but but also it does you have a slightly different uh, sports better that, uh, that that gambles live and play a lot and, and those guys are, are, are sharp they're, they're really smart guys so you're going head to head with those guys on on prices that uh, you know they've got a they've got an, an entire universe of markets out there to, to pick from and uh, and you're just one of them and you're just trying to balance your own book. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the biggest challenges within play, which you've already sort of touched on, is the, I guess, the education aspect of the regular the regular gambler, just so they can understand what's possible. And, and I guess without having in play as a viable option uh, in the US, especially if it's 20, 25% of the total handle, for example, you're not going to have those hedging possibilities. You're not going to have those people who are trading in a more typical stock market use of the word it's going to be yes. just a pre-game bet and that's it so i think until that catches up to the, what the technology is and i think there's a large gap there certainly here in the u.s then it, there's going to be challenges but i think once it does and given the what we've discussed about the timing with some of the 
some of the sports here. It's a pretty lucrative option for those who are on the operator side, and even for those who are you know betting and gambling professionally, they should be thinking about what those possibilities might be and, and have an expanded portfolio of options. And I know that some of the previous guests who have sort of hedge funds and uh, sports hedge funds who are based outside of the U.S. have thought about it, but it's just not there yet. So I guess it's certainly an interesting topic to talk about. And I guess moving forward with the future of sports betting and what it's going to be like, what are some of the thoughts, you know, from your perspective, uh, being in the U.S., living here, having the background, what have you seen? And I guess where is it headed in the next even 12 months to sort of three years? Yeah, I, I, without a doubt, it's it's going to be it's going to be a land-based uh, play in, in my head. Uh, this is going to this the licenses are going to go to the existing infrastructure. It's going to go to the, the, the land-based casino groups. It's going to go to the to the tracks, and and there might be mobile on-premises, but I, I don't foresee the the immediate jump to uh, you, you know to to statewide online sports betting like what you see in Nevada. I think it's going to be a little bit of a slow roll, and that that's gonna that's gonna hamper that's gonna hamper the the rollout of sports betting. I think in in the U.S. and that you know right now people are gambling. You know the, the American Gaming Association says 150 billion dollars. It might be more than that. Might be less than that. Who knows? But there's a lot of people gambling, and. They're already on, you know, pretty sophisticated sports books. They might be illegal, but they're pretty sophisticated sports books. So if the rollout is is um, is just going to be land based, I, I think that there's going to be, um, it's going to be pretty slow. Uh, and and you know, having to go into a shop to you know to place bets or having to go into to KYC your your uh, your account is is going to be a challenge. You know, that that's. That's that's just the nature of of e-commerce versus bricks and mortar, uh, but but certainly once once the U.S. gets gets used to uh, sports betting and and it's allowed to to operate online, I think that it's going to be it's going to be as as big or, or bigger than than the anticipation. Uh, that, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of operators who who currently understand how to operate in each one of the states and the, and the challenges with with uh, you know operating in one state versus another, they'll figure out the risk management and the software and the tech, uh, and and there'll there'll be products out there that are that are really going to be competitive for uh, you know for Americans to 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 move from kind of the, the the illegal market to the to the legal market. So you mentioned 150 billion, which I think is the number from the AGA is. Of that 150 billion, if it's just land-based casinos getting licenses to have, you know, a shop front, shop window within their building, within their complex, what do you think that absorption is going to be like? Because in my mind, those people who live on their phones, which is me and my generation, and certainly the older and younger generation to an extent, aren't going to walk 10, 15, 20 minutes, jump in their car necessarily 15, 20 minutes to go and just place a bet. They might do it, you know, once a week on a Sunday to bet on a number of games perhaps. But these days with sort of instant gratification with having a computer in your hand, it seems to me a bit of a problematic scenario when you've still got that generation who like using their mobile devices to do everything and then you're telling them they've got to go and walk into a a brick-and-mortar shop with probably a different demographic, demographic of people and not necessarily, you know, the greatest places to hang out on a Sunday to watch games for, for certain people. So do you think that'll hamper absorption? I guess to what extent do you think of that $150 billion number, which we'll just take for arbitrary purposes, will be absorbed? 
You bring up a great point. Uh, yeah, I think Google even say that people check their phones 150 times a day. Uh, you're, you're exactly right. The, the, my, my response to that as an operator is twofold. One of them is I need, I need the U.S. government to not just uh, legalize uh, you know, sports betting, but I, I also need them to put in measures that prevent illegal operations as best as they can. And that is not just you know, the operators themselves, but that's payment processors, because payment processors really actually run the gaming industry. If, if you're able to get money in and money out of accounts, uh, you know, however that might be, that 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 fuels that fuels the fire. And if um, you know, if 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 the if the federal you know legislation or the or state legislations you know start to to hammer the illegal operations from that perspective, I think that as an operator that is legal and licensed in the United States in one of the states, I will have some protection, and and that will that will be that will be incredibly useful. On the other hand. Uh, Yes, you're right. There's going to be uh, there's going to be a massive challenge to get people to uh, you know to go in and into a into a bricks and mortar uh, you know location and and place those wagers. But I do also know that that people like to gamble, uh, you know, where they're protected, where where their money gets protected, where bets are guaranteed. Um, and, and inherently, I think you know most people like to do things that are legal and not illegal. So uh, my counter to the maybe for the 150 billion. And maybe let's just say if if you know fifty percent of that is 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 online, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that the, there's a, there's going to be a lot of uptake on the on the bricks and mortar at least in the beginning, and they're going to know that it's going to go online pretty quickly, so they're going to want to get in um, and, and and be legal from from the word go. So if you were advising the federal government or even a state legislator, for example, about the approach to the future of sports betting and legalizing it, would you recommend that they provide land-based casinos with the opportunity to purchase a license and in conjunction with that go after the illegal operators pretty heavily to try and stop their presence or alternatively allow both land-based and online licenses and not spend the time the resources the money enforcing the illegal operators uh from not you know operating that jurisdiction and, and using that time resources and money to regulate those online operators do you think that's a better approach or how would you think about it from from your experience? Um, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't very often put on the hypothetical uh, hat of a state uh, uh, senator or, or congressperson, nor a, nor a federal one. But I will say that it, it has to go. It, it really does have to go to the infrastructure that already exists, and that's the that's the land based casinos and the tracks. They understand. They have a relationship with the state. Uh, they KYC their customers. Uh, they protect their their customers. They have. Uh, various programs that already exist, like responsible gambling programs, uh, that 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 are are part and parcel to their business. And as a you know as a as a government, I, I would I would feel far more comfortable giving uh, a sports betting license or a, a, a allowing those 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 entities to to apply for a license rather than you know somebody from you know who has never operated in the United States ever before and and. Uh, yeah, that, that that would that that would be far more prudent. I venture I venture to say so. Yes, definitely uh, to to the land based uh, the land based casinos and the and the tracks at least to begin with. And that's what's happened in Nevada anyway, though. Yeah, it's a bit of a slow burn. It's a bit of a rollout. It's a bit of a step by step approach, and I guess that provides comfort, I suppose. 
Yes, it does. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's prudent, I guess. Yeah. So what else have you seen out there? I guess you're on the cutting edge working with operators, being a, previously as an operator yourself and being involved in the technology side and the, the sports and the gambling sectors. What are we missing from a regular person walking down the street who wouldn't be as in touch with everything that you are? What's the, what are some of the future applications in sports betting that you see? Because I think about fantasy and the popularity here be, for many reasons, including the, you know, the sabermetrics world and the advanced analytics world lending itself to having, you know, fantasy teams and things like that, which is not necessarily as strong or as, as widespread as, as other countries. But do you see sort of, you know, exchanges based purely on fantasy points and fantasy scoring or, you know, derivative markets that allow in-game betting and up-to-date information that allow something like that from a, you know, a fantasy-only fantasy sports sports book and things like that what's some of the things here that could be possible or that you're even seeing now that you think would be cool applications going into the future uh, the, the number one the number one aspect that i see uh happening uh in sports betting probably across the globe is uh it, it's content and, it, and it's personalization so so you know why? Why do I need to? Why do I, as a gambler, you know, need to to, to look go onto a sports book um, and, and look at you know fifty thousand different markets and try to sift through them all in order for me to get to the one market that the sports book should probably know that that's the one that I bet on. Uh, you know, if, if 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 I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan and I'm a Minnesota Twins fan uh, and and I and I and I bet on Chelsea, you know, and I've done that kind of every week for the past, you know. Two years. What you know? Why why are you going to be offering me, uh, you know, tennis matches, and what, why do I even have to sift through that? And and not only not only that from a transactional perspective, but also just from a pure content perspective. I mean, I we just talked about it. I, you know, we check our phones 150 times a day. Um, our attention span is, is is pretty short these days. So what do we want? We want little snackable size, you know, pieces of content. And, and that snackable size piece of contents usually will confirm a bias that I already have. If I already know that I'm going to bet on, uh, you know, Chelsea over Man United or I'm going to take the All Blacks over the, the Aussies in, in rugby, well, I'm just looking at, you know, connecting a couple of dots, you know, how do I place my bet as quickly as possible and do that. And the sports books really are well positioned to take all of that data, whether it's sports data whether it's sports betting data or it's data about me individually or, and applying all of that information in a, you know, in a, in a machine learning and, and, and understanding what, you know, what am I going to be betting on tomorrow and what am I going to be betting on in, in the next few months and, and, and giving me a really tailored uh, sports betting uh, entertainment solution. That, that's really what I see happening in the in the relatively near future. Uh, you know, sports books are starting to provide way more content, uh, but but it's really about is it is it personalized content? Is it content that I need? Do I get my own? Do I get my own content feed versus you know you having a, a very different content feed? But we're on the same sports book. That's all possible, and it's all being done on lots in lots of different industries. Uh, that sh- that'll be happening probably in, in the next couple of years. So how far can that stretch? Because I speak to a fair few people on this podcast about their, you know, professional betting, and one of the common themes is they get shut down because they're winning, you know, long term. Is it possible in the future? Do you think that, you know, in thinking about different strategies for these professionals and how they can get around it? Some of the stories I've heard are 
hilarious and crazy and a you know a number of other adjectives but can they have a situation where you go on to a sports book and if you're a professional and you're winning long term and they say look I don't want to turn you away I'm happy for you to bet with me but instead instead of you know minus 110 or dollar 90 as we say in decimals I'm going to give you you know a dollar 87 and obviously that's an extra couple of percent that I'm going to collect over the ter- over the long term but I'm happy to bet with you at that percentage and you might have a recreational better who maybe they don't care if it's minus one ten or a dollar ninety. They'll still bet at a dollar ninety two or you know whatever it might be. Do you think it's possible in the future? And are there any issues with modifying the different odds for different people based on their tendencies and preferences? No, but and again, that goes back. That goes straight back to the personalization. Um, we would have some of the most amazingly sharp uh, rugby get, uh, betters on our book. Uh, you know, but but when they went into cricket, they were just useless. So 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 uh, me being able to, as a as a as a operator and as a provider of, of entertainment to be able to to say, hey, look, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna offer you, offer you, you know, maybe not as good a as, as good a margin, uh, you know, wagering on, on your rugby, but, but, but we'll be pretty will be pretty generous for you on on the cricket. Uh, that is all part of that personalization conversation. And as a book, look. I, I, I do understand, uh, you know, some some operators, you know, wanting to, to, to close down accounts and, and manage risk and, and those types of things. But, um, you know, the, the, those 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 gamblers actually provide you. They're, they're a little bit of the canary in the in the mine. I mean, they, they tell you where, where where you need to be from a risk management perspective. And and that can be really useful. And using, you know, using some of those really sharp gamblers for your risk management is, is important. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we really didn't close that many that many accounts when I was in South Africa for that very reason. And it was unusual that we didn't close those accounts. But uh, yeah, I, I, here in the United States, the risk management is going to be a challenge uh, because if, if, you know, depending on the regulatory framework, you might only be able to manage a book inside of Oklahoma. And that risk management inside of Oklahoma might be very different than the risk management inside of California or inside of New York. And if you're not able to consolidate that risk, yeah, you're going to have some some books with some massive positions and, and gamblers that are, are going to get their accounts closed because, uh, you know, they want to place big big bets on one side and, and, and there's just nobody to take the other side. So, Yeah, that's one of the big issues I see with state-by-state rollouts and I can just hear the odds for Baker Mayfield tumbling in now for the Heisman and there's nothing that a bookmaker can do because they've got no outs, then they're, they're in a bit of trouble. So they're just going to offer non-competitive markets and if that's the case, then it's a cascading effect where... No one's going to bet there who's betting a decent amount of money and then it becomes just a non-viable betting product in that state. And I've certainly spoken to others about it in the past. It's a it's a real concern, but that's obviously for another day and for another legislator or regulator to worry about, not for us. But I want to ask right. about the risk management. What you mentioned before is it seems to be done manually now whereby if it is someone who's pretty sharp and they place a bet and the operator doesn't want to take it, they'll either, it'll be pending for a while and they'll decide, do we reduce the odds? Or do we reduce the stake? Or do we reduce both? Or do we just decline the bet? They're kind of doing it manually now. Do you think it'll get to a point where they can automate that and say, look, you know, Daniel's killing us on T20 cricket in the Caribbean. He's probably going to bet on this game coming up. He's betting on, you know, who's going to win outright. Our odds are this team's going to win, you know, at 77% of the time. Let's just frame it as if they're going to win 81% because we're happy to do that for him at that price. And he's going to bet this amount and we can accept that. Getting out ahead of that would massively increase the, I guess, the the happiness for those professional bettors who want to bet in those markets. And maybe they're happy to take that price, maybe they're not. But 
some of those things, do you think in the future they'll be automated to try and reduce the the customer experience issues that they're sort of having now? And, and unless it's an exchange, which is around 100%, those corporate bookmakers being massive businesses are having a lot of problems with the, I guess, the customer experience for those more professional bettors who are providing a lot of the volume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it... it, it. Everything else in the world is going, to, is, is going towards the automation uh, angle, so I, I can't imagine why that would be any different. I, I do think that the exchanges, you know, provide an awful lot of opportunity for, for the books that are able to access them with, um, you know, with with a lot of volume, to 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 lay off their their wagers. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you just look at the horse racing industry um, and the and the and the big the big gamblers in the horse racing industry. I mean, they're always using, uh, they're always using the exchanges, and, and, and they're using them in a, in, in a, in a quite a quite a sharp quite a sharp method, and it's and it's all automated. So, I mean, they don't know who they're they're what horses they're taking. Sometimes they're just you know taking taking the good prices and the and the prices where where they see some arbitrage, um, and and that's yeah that, that apply that to to bookmaking, and, and I think that that's what uh, that's what right looks like in the future. Can you take us through what advice you would give to fantasy sports companies in the US, especially the daily fantasy ones who are, you know, trying to make a living now given the current regulatory environment? I think it's being done to death about the over advertising and and the proliferation of ads from the sort of big daily fantasy sites, but I guess looking forward rather than looking back, what do you what would you be thinking about if you were involved with those and I guess, you know, looking towards the legalization and the different sort of possibilities. What are some of the things they should be thinking about? You know what? They're already thinking about them because when they went over to the when they went over to Europe, uh, they had to get sports betting licenses out of the UK. So, so they they understand, and, and I think it's Joe Asher out of out of William Hill CEO says, uh, you know, daily fantasy sports betting. It, it's it's already it, in my head. It's it's already uh, sports sports wagering, um, and and them being able to to you know, to, to move into sports betting doesn't seem like that big of a leap. I think the biggest leap it would be uh, the shareholders and, and the stakeholders that they have um, and some of the states that they've been trying to convince that, that they aren't sports betting. That, that's probably the challenge that they have. But, I mean, their, their databases are probably pretty valuable um, and, and probably have a, a lot of the sports bettors that, uh, that exist inside the United States. I mean, the first, the first place I would, I would go to for, for all of the sports bettors would be the casino loyalty programs because uh, th- those, those are riddled with sports betters but the second place i would look is uh is the daily fantasy uh place and and there's a reason why patty power uh betfair bought uh bought draft um and you know for whatever it was 20 million dollars without earn out up to 50 and and that was uh, you know that that had to have been you know part of of patty power's play to 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 get involved in the in the sports wagering and 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 offering you know various types of of products, uh, you know that that scan that span the the, the legal uh, the legal aspects. Yeah, absolutely. It's been an interesting sort of period recently for the fantasy world. So, I guess we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. So, one last one for you, and I guess for those potential operators out there and those thinking about sports betting and the possibilities and you know what the future holds is obviously a a contingent of you know massive companies, corporations, some are public in the in Europe now and obviously William Hill US is here some of those big conglomerates are going to be heading this way soon what advice would you give for the smaller operators and I guess in the same sort of realm as that what what openings do you think there will be for those smaller operators because it's going to be an interesting sort of rollout in the US once it's legalized and how it's legalized but you know do you see 
10 man operations rolling out with sports betting offerings and and those type of things that can compete with those large corporate conglomerates who are going to be here or do you think it's going to be a, a tough uphill sledding for some of those smaller companies yeah i think that uh, I, I think that there's there's going to be i think the american gaming association is talking about a 12 billion dollar gaming revenue industry uh it will be the u.s sports betting industry and and i mean when when that happens there are you know niche markets and opportunities exist um in in droves so i i think that it's it's literally just i mean there's going to be a lot of big players but there's going to be so many different players and there's going to be so many opportunities uh you know to get it right i just venture to say that the, the guys that that are you know, regardless of their size, um, the ones that are nimble uh, and the ones that have good technology uh, and get onto mobile phones, those are the guys that are going to win. Uh, and and that's, uh, you know, that doesn't it doesn't matter if you're a, a 10 man uh, group or a 10 man team or, or you're a 150 man team. Uh, that that's really to me the the important aspects. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be uh, cool to watch some of the. Uh the new applications coming out, some of the device things they can do on those devices and, and see how they can compete with some of the, the big players. Before I let you go, Daniel, what's the best way for the listeners to reach out to you? Obviously, Twitter, Chalkline Sports, but is that the best way to, to be in touch? Yeah, Daniel at ChalklineSports.com. I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm always happy. I'm a sports betting geek, so I'm happy to talk about the industry in any form or fashion with damn near anybody. Yeah, it's been certainly fun for me to have a chat and I obviously have a million more questions, but maybe we'll get to that next time. And I want to thank you again for your time. And it's it's really cool to speak to someone who has the experience you do and obviously with the focus on the US. So I wish you well with Chalkline Sports and I look forward to doing this again soon. Great. I really appreciate you having me, Jake, and, uh, and you have a good one.